Welcome, everyone, to the Pratt Library and to Poetry and Conversation with Kathy Wolf, David Eberhardt, and Greg Mawson. After the reading, we invite you to stay uh, for refreshments at the back table um, to purchase books at the other back table. Um, all three authors have um, books for sale and to sign up for our email list about future readings here at the Pratt Library and to fill out evaluations that um, help management know that um, these uh, readings are important to you. Our next Poetry and Conversation reading will be October 28th here in the Poe Room with poets James Arthur and Joseph Harrison and November 4th in the Children's Night Room on uh, 2S in the Pratt Library. Uh, we'll have uh, one of our Poems by Heart gathering. And December 6th at 2 p.m. at the University of Baltimore Business Center, uh, the Pratt Library will be presenting the annual Akabe Kanem reading series with Reginald Dwayne Betts and Camille Rankin. Uh, that's at 11 West Mount Royal Avenue. Tonight we welcome poets Kathy Wolf, David Everhart, and Greg Mawson. Um, David Everhart will be reading first, and I'll uh, read a, a brief introduction. Uh, David Everhart has published three books of poetry, The Tree Calendar, Blue Running Lights, and Poems from the Website, Poetry in Baltimore. He's at work at a memoir for all the saints. As a peace protester, Dave was incarcerated at Lewisburg Federal Prison in 1970 for 21 months for, for pouring blood on draft files with Father Philip Berrigan and two others to protest the Vietnam War. He's retired after 33 years of work as a director of offender aid and restoration at the Baltimore City Jail. And please welcome David Eberhardt. Thank you, Kim and Shailene and um, the Pratt. I worked quite hard to get my little book in here. Um, and I'm glad to be with these other two poets because I think we're very simpatico. I'm glad to have this prestigious venue with Q Media. <laughs> uh, our uh, chairman of the board, which reminds me of Lehman Brothers or Goldman Sachs, you know. Good Lord. Anyway, I have a sonnet at the tomb of Pope. He sinks beneath the surface like a stone, sidling crabwise down till buried in mud. A gold bug threadwise through vacant skull eye down into maelstroms of stars. Less and less loud the thud of shovelfuls above him into sidereal time, the tunnel back to light obscured, buried alive as he thought, as if to keep him down the green block from some ancient obscure disaster. Vermont granite dug, ripped and quarried, dark green, not jadeite green, an intenser, darker green. As absinthe, but blacker still, like nevermore. Its dense sheen like shiny hair, black hair, Legia's, Virginia's, Helen's, or Lenore's. 
Bury the critics alive, I say. Poe careens down corridors of light, more drunk than before. Upon the stone, a raven carved the words blur, but it's not the end. Buried alive in our imaginations, he rises eerily again. And you have uh, Mary O'Grady has put together a site called The Light Ekphrastic, and she takes a work of art and then has a poet write to that work of art. And uh, that's why we passed out the painting and the photograph, because I merged those two in this poem. And there's a copy of the poem, too. It's uh, Janowski and Eberhard at the top. And I'm going to read the second poem first, which goes with the colored painting, my favorite, John Everett Millay's The Blind Girl. The other photograph is of uh, Mesolithic burial on an island off the coast of France. So... I think without looking at the poem, you would wonder, what the heck? Blind girl. Pity the blind, they say, as well. The one-eyed man is free in our kingdom. At night, regard the flashes behind your lids. A bow stretched tight against the clouds. Sister purple in chrome fields, the queen must die. From earth to earth, we must return your ochre dress, your accordion, fourth star out at the Karenai. You cared for me, Murray, though you were blind. You did not need to search. I was the restless one. I tear away. Look at the sky you cannot see. The double rainbow, bright field of wheat. After a storm, we put the two into the cairn with countless seashells. Beneath the two great stone, men hear stolmans in stone rows, as was our custom for the dead. Boar mandibles, red deer antlers, and we sang. The four stars arranged themselves against the replicants. These women were our gods and dreams. The butterfly, a tortoise shell, that landed on her shawl that day. She sat so still, Satori still, the same fly lands on the anchor pilot stone, the stone a boat through years of light. Guide stars lead us between the hinge. Two queens sit beside a lemon field. The blind queen leads as in a game of chess. The younger sister wears a purple dress. It all matters in the order of things, as they must. Even the crows strut purposefully as covenants. The double rainbow promises bounty for this year. Those assembled for the ceremony repeat the chants. A double rainbow ensures our bounty for the year. And how much time, Shaylee? Five? Five minutes? Okay. And not to be entirely heavy.
and because I know you're, you'll be glad to get this little lighter work that's more humorous, but also I've got French translations for this, so you can go uh, home feeling quite sophisticated. From Baltimore, home of the television series, The The Corner and the Wire, Abandominium Ode. Rats be crawling across my feet, heroin high. And in the French, dans le taudis abandonné, les rats rampant sur mes pieds, heroin défense. Ooh, there's another version. I have scads of French friends, also literary. Les rats guillant sur mes pieds, ravage par arrowing. Two, homage to David Mamet, who did the original um, The Corner. I don't know, Homicide. I think it was in the early 90s, this movie. It's a great movie. Serial killer to cop. Want to know the nature of evil? Cop. No, I'd be out of a job. No translation there. Uh, Three. FBI couldn't find Joe Lewis in a bowl of white rice. Translation, FBI pourri le pourri pas trouvé. Joe Lewis, dans un bois de riz blanc. Uh, Four. Yo, careful that pit bull don't bite your Johnson. He be going that way. Uh, no translation there. <laughs> and uh, lastly, a poem trouvé, a found poem, which you've seen all around town. It has a very uh, Freudian message to me. Assistance for trapped animals, call 311. And in the French... Assistance pour les animaux captifs, appelez les trois Or, en cas d'animal, en cas d'animal, piège à l'intérieur, appelez les trois Thank you. That be it. Time okay? I can? All right. I'm going to do the poem that I wrote to accompany the painting that the lady did for me to accompany me. And it's similarly uh, mystical and um, through the Stonehenge. Death came as you prophesied. It wasn't that bad. Remember the times when you fell asleep? A terrain where you walked, then slid, a minor death beneath your lids. You thought you could observe, but never could. You gathered final images around. Romance has bloomed on stonier ground. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. Paul Atreides, ocean planets, planets all dune. 
Practice by counting your breaths until you get close. Think yoga. Count backwards, but you'll never find out. Door, hidden garden, we all fall down. But rehearsing the end, all's already been said. In a dream, you fell sleeping, and then you are dead. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. The crows in the painting are maybe symbolic of resurrection. There's a lot been written about this painting. Thank you very much, Dave. Our next, Greg Mawson will be reading. Uh, Greg Mawson is the author of two books of poetry, Questions of Fire and Seasons of Flower and Flowers and Dust. From 2003 through 2010, he founded and edited the magazine Poems Against War, a journal which published seven issues and remains archived online. He's a former reporter and commentator whose work has appeared in the Cincinnati Review, the Baltimore Sun, the Oregonian, the Baltimore Review, and the Futurist. His poetry has appeared in many small press journals. A graduate of the Johns Hopkins Writing Seminars, he has taught both at Johns Hopkins and at the University of Baltimore. He is a former contributing editor at the Baltimore Review. Please welcome Greg Mawson. Hi, good evening. Um, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much for the Pratt, um, both for this wonderful series, uh, Poetry and Conversation, and for inviting me to it and having us all here. Um, it's such a beautiful room, too, and it's so wonderful to read in it. Um, the theme, at least the theme of the reading, I want to do my reading a little differently than I probably would have done in the past, and I haven't read in a little while, um, as a, in a formal way at least, so I wanted to start with just the idea. One of the things that came to me was the idea of, you know, what is political poetry? And I don't know if that necessarily has to be um, the theme of the entire reading. And I have two children who I love very much, and so I'm reading a lot of Dr. Seuss. So I want to read from, I want to read about The Waiting Place, and it's from Oh, The Places You'll Go, which is a fabulous book. And what happens at The Waiting Place? People are just waiting, waiting for the train to go, or a bus to come, or a plane to go, or the mail to come, or the rain to go, or the phone to ring, or the snow to snow, or waiting around for a yes or a no, or waiting for their hair to grow. Everyone is just waiting, waiting for the fish to bite, or waiting for the wind to fly a kite, or waiting around for a Friday night. Or waiting perhaps for their Uncle Jake, or a pot to boil, or a better break, or a string of pearls, or a pair of pants, or a wig with curls, or another chance. Everyone is just waiting. Well, I'd say activists and also political poets are not waiting. That, just not waiting. But maybe, you know, certainly that's true of political, political activists and poets. Not waiting. Um, 
the other theme I wanted for the reading was a thankfulness. I feel very thankful. Um, and I'm thankful for, you know, some of my uh, fellow poets in the audience. I'm thankful for we're all poetry lovers that are here. Um, thankful for this space. So um, the Balt- there's a place called the Baltimore Yoga Village. I just found out about it, really. But they have a studio in, on Falls Road, past Northern Parkway, and they have one in Hamden. And every year they've been bringing these Tibetan monks to visit. And I was able to bump into it uh, this May. I think it was the eighth time that they've come. These, these monks particularly live in India. As um, some people may know, most people probably know that a lot of Tibetan religious uh, devotees are, are either under serious pressure or are in exile. And I was able to be a, a big part of it, or at least be a big attendee of it. And um, I was able, I just want to... Um, Say a prayer. I, I bought. Uh, uh, say a prayer. Every day, think as you wake up. Today, I am fortunate to have woken up. I am alive. I have precious human life. I am not going to waste it. I'm going to use all my energies to develop myself, to expand my heart out to others, to achieve enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. I'm going to have kind thoughts towards others. I'm not going to get angry or think badly about others. I'm going to benefit others as much as I can. And those words were by the Dalai Lama. But So in the mode of thankfulness, um, I want to... Adrian Rich, who's a wonderful poet and also a Baltimore native... Um, has influenced a lot of people for decades, including me, <laughs> um, which is the beautiful, unforeseen nature of art, maybe, um, especially uh, in the years, the 2000s, the first decade of the century. She was a big consolation, inspiration, deep thinker, questioner, uh, mover forward of progressive thought and ideas. And, and when I say progressive thought and ideas, I'm talking about at a basic level, uh, peace, uh, not war, uh, justice, uh, not injustice, sharing, not um, greed. I think she really thought through those things and criticized them, too, because she was also part of the 60s and 70s. And if you look at her later work, she really thought about, well, what went right, what went wrong? This is a homage to Adrian Rich. Lit fuse in the blood-soaked world's womb. Sunbursts in oldest darkness to dance down gem-sharded corridors. When I was fist-shaking in the labyrinth, even heart-in-shadowed. When the underground telephone shrilly rang incessantly, you unmasked a thread forward called homeward, circling back to you, I, us. Let's continue this quarry for molten words from the core stuff, torching what guides us to walk in clear sight. Like those who buried you not too long ago, In us fellow travelers, unbury our hearts daily under justice's flown flag.
So on that theme too, um, another thought I had about political poetry is on some level, we're just, you know, at least in my own small way, you know, just sort of continuing and passing on. I mean, some of the activism and my, uh, what happened, I'm going to read the poem from my second book, Questions of Fire, and the book is personal and political, but what happened is I, I got very involved in the anti-war movement um, in 2003 to 2005, or maybe 2002 to 2005, and I didn't really have time to write, so the writing had to become um, part of it. And, you know, on some level, it's, that's not, that makes a lot of sense if you read Whitman or Langston Hughes or Adrian Rich, but it might, you know, be kind of daunting as if you're doing it yourself. Um, so this actually is for Dave Everhart, and um, this was actually based on a reading that he gave at Friends uh, School, and, and I don't remember the person who has organized peace readings every year there, and I was invited in there um, to just attend, and, uh, and uh, Dave read, and, and, and the other, the other, it's called The Unknown Soldier. In green flak jacket with peace signs pinned to both sleeves, a poet performs and says, I am the unknown soldier, pouring blood. He himself poured blood on draft cards 41 years ago, then was pinned into Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary for two and a half years. His hands tremble, pinch themselves until he pins them behind his back, hand gripped in hand, it notes how white phosphorus made by Dow Chemical burns those Vietnamese even underwater. Ingenuity of our best and brightest, how it sticks to him, how paper and pen can tower over men. Tomorrow he will return to his job helping detainees in jail meet bail. His journey circle cleanses him. But today... As history's waves leer and crash, when a low, rumbled echo of menace and detritus, watching him so clear-sighted, he shakes. He speaks his poetry before 16 people on a Sunday, and the words quiver like a finger, sliding along a razor, back and forth, back and forth, from rage to care, rage to care, rage to care. So I wanted to read um, one poem from my first book, Season of Flowers and Dust, and it's October. My first book is all um, seasonal, and um, this is called October Showers. Delicate liquid beads fuging through the trees, bash chandeliers of leaves, but then the storm recedes, leaving green porcelain balls, diamond, shuddering. There were two of us, gesticulating, shrugs shagged with exquisite aqueous pendants. We were two striding through tree-arched avenues where bushes dusk broke wet final flowers. We named trees. We spoke, pointed at birches. We said, look, looked. We ran to and thought, Silence. We put hands to. We went and touched and looked farther. 
We named what inscribed us with a beauty that was violence. So I'm going to uh, read two new poems. I don't have as much time to write as I used to, um, but I actually was looking for some new poems. I'm like, ah, I have written. So this one's a poem for Jenny. Uh, she's no longer with us. Where is our laugh, our shared smoke, our telephone? In rain, beneath shun- sunshine, across a simple shared meal? Even in our last year, when I was city-bound, you wild in the mountains. I assumed we'd soon, at some point, eventually laugh over a beer. Where should I turn without you in this world-filled absence? How shall I discern through these heart-filled streets? So... An errand for dental floss whisks me to our lost road trips. As if a Rick Rick wrist flick becomes a lake from which a gleam recalls your wildfire grin. Let me send you a postcard. Let my mountains of etc. avalanche details to fill our shared overused gravel pit our laddered cores. On best days, no need to call, because we're together. On good days, like this, I hear in the clouds, my blood, your rigging. Um, so the last poem, I'm going to circle back actually to that visit uh, the, to, when the Tibetan monks came. And um, this is called Opportunity in May. Open this door into a maze of light. Here, as none warned, feel more baffled as light streaked fingers reach through the light to later light to further, faster flickers. I turn over my palms and ask, toward what what lucent good and with what odd instruments? Until feeling offers a lens through this prism and the pageantry of forms peels back as if a bell hums just for me, just for each. And with humbleness, I sense a wholeness and stumble forward. Step upon step, the hum grows. Though neither louder, nor softer, nor with finality, but like a hive, teeming with making. Whereas mere drone, I approach the face of the queen, and the queen too leads to light. Thank you.
Okay, thank you very much, Craig. Reading next is Kathy Wolf. Um, Kathy Wolf is a poet and writer. Her most recent collection, The Uppity Blind Girl Poems, winner of the 2014 Stonewall Chapbook Competition, was published by Brickhouse Books in 2015. Her work has appeared or is forthcoming in Word Gathering, Gargoyle, Poetry Magazine, and other publications. In 2013, Finishing Line Press published Wolf's poetry chapbook, The Green Light. Her collection, Helen Takes the Stage, The Helen Keller Poems, was published by Pudding House in 2008. She was a 2008 Lambda Literary Foundation Emerging Writer Fellow. Wolf is a contributor to the groundbreaking anthology Beauty is a Verb, The New Poetry of Disability. She is a contributor to the Washington Blade, the acclaimed LGBT newspaper. Please welcome Kathy Wolf. Yeah, um, how do you, Shailene. Shailene is turning me on, people. Um, that this thing gets if you put that away and turn me on. You didn't know that was part of your job description. Um, Wow. Ooh, sorry. I like a little drama when I read. Um, can you folks hear? Yes. Okay. Um, I think somebody was taking a flash picture. Can you do me a favor? I don't mind if you um, photograph my wondrous, wondrous visage, but can you take the flash photos either now or afterwards? Because if you do it when I'm reading, I will explode, which would be dramatic but not poetic, um, or a new genre of poetics. Um, a shout out to to Pratt and Shelling and Kim and and Pratt and um, all you folks for coming. So I'm going to read from my book, The Uppity Blind Girl Poems. And as you may have guessed, the book is about Uppity. Uppity is 25 and lives in New York City. And so these poems are in the voice of Uppity. And I think I know you well enough, and Uppity does so that Uppity can disclose this much to you. So in that spirit, my first poem is called Full Disclosure. Full Disclosure, how much do you see? What about colors? Do you make love with your eyes closed? Ask the man at the poetry, meeting, the man at the poetry reading who's recited an epic about his penis. I've got braille eyes. In the back of my head, I'm the Sappho of the night. I tell penis man, I bet your Mr. Johnson is green with envy over my lavender inner vision. Tell me about your member. How much do you see with it? <laughs> Thank you. I read this once at an open mic, and every ma- I read this, and every male from eight to eighty got up before he read and said, "I'm not penis man." <laughs> this next poem is an homage to the pulp fiction that was written in the 1950s, and in those days, you could have gay sex, but you had to go to jail for it. So. This poem is called A Pulp Fiction. A Pulp Fiction, 
All those lesbians you pal around with will lead into a blind alley, her grandmother told Uppity. For the love of Sappho, Uppity thought, slipping on her silver pumps, take me there. Bring me to this dyke-infested place where sapphic ghost... Obviously, the ghosts don't want me to read this poem because um, my pages stick together. Where sapphic ghosts kiss blindly in devil-encrusted glitz, where forbidden fruit ripens. Let me caress the shattered stone. My cane and dagger will slash the heart of my ex, who left me standing alone on the street after the midnight show of wait until dark. In a blind passion, my hands will stalk the crumbling walls, looking for requited love, like a sightless idiot, believing it can be found. And this next poem is called Love at First Sight. Love at First Sight. In an elevator trapped between the 15th and 16th floor of her apartment building, Sunday morning, Elizabeth, her cane in one hand, coffee and bagels in the other, just in from the deli, met Sabrina and her poodle, Toto. Maybe it was Toto dancing like a flying monkey around Elizabeth's cane, the wind roaring through the elevator shaft like a twister barrowing down on Kansas. Sabrina's pomegranate pomegranate-scented hair, or Elizabeth's ruby-red flip-flops, calling loudly for help, pressing the emergency button, needing to pee, they were headed toward Oz. A week later, Elizabeth and Sabrina in bed followed their own yellow brick road, dreaming of rainbow ballads and wizard blues. Will she have red or white? the bartender asked Sabrina as she and Elizabeth sat holding hands at the Tin Man pub. She'll have an old-fashioned, Elizabeth told the server. Elizabeth, murmured Sabrina. Call me uppity, she said. I'm the door that won't stay closed, the spy who cracks the code. No wicked, mel- no wicked witch can melt me, here with my sweetie in the Emerald City. Thank you. Um, this next title I stole from my buddy Stephen Kazusto's memoir, The Planet of the Blind. So he said he would forgive me for stealing it, which was nice of him. This poem is called The Planet of the Blind. The Planet of the Blind. You really can hear a pin drop. Uppity told the incense-burning old lady in apartment 3B, who, like Sherlock Holmes, thoughtfully smoking his pipe, patiently tried to deduce how Uppity's world was different from hers. Mirrors are for aliens, Uppity said. The sun tastes like red velvet cake. Your lover's voice is a cashmere cape. A clown's smile smells like... A clown's smile smells of orange blossoms and ashes. You are your own shadow. Thank you. 
And this next poem is a, a, a little bit of uppity riffing about Chicken Little. When you're in D.C., you hear about Chicken Little a lot. Um, so this poem is called Maybe Chicken Little Wasn't Paranoid After All. Maybe Chicken Little Wasn't Paranoid After All. Uppity, toes dancing in her soft shoes, fingers tapping her white cane, knew why Chicken Little had been afraid. She was just calling the shots, the shots as she saw them, using state-of-the-art technology of her time to place her best bet on when the heavens, seemingly as secure as the king's castle, would fall, uppity thought, toasting her 21st birthday with a Bellini with two girlfriends in a Soho bar, intense if neurotic sky-watching, spot-on detection, acute acorn observation, were the top predictive indicators in Chicken Little's era. But she'd left dumb luck out of her, out of her prognostications, Uppity saw, just as the doctors, those oracles, had at her birth in 1988. The oak seed, the gods fastening the clouds to their hinges, kept everything safe for Chicken Little. Still, Uppity knew why Chicken Little had been afraid. She'll never amount to anything, the doctors, the seers of the land, told Uppity's parents at her birth. Never move the furniture. Never let her walk alone. Much less ride a bike. Who knows if she'll ever learn how to eat. They'd asked as if the sky had already fallen. Maybe the docs were using state-of-the-art technology of their time, Uppity thought, sipping her cocktail, calling the shots as they saw them for people like me. But they'd left dumb luck out of their prognostications. Her father believed in poker. Her mother worshipped Fred Astaire. If the sky did fall, they never saw it. Thank you. Albany uh, has a sister named Justine and as you can imagine, Uppity can sometimes be a bit of a brat. This poem is called Justine's Valentine for her sister Uppity. Thief, from day one, you stole my teddy bears, chewing gum. For more, fu for more fun, you jumped into my bubble bath, splashing with perfect pitch radar, soap into my eyes. You're like me now, you giggled when I wailed that I couldn't see. Don't cry, the shampoo smells like peaches. Brat, early on you moved me, a pawn across your chessboard. Ruled by your shadow, sister eyes, I could see that I'd never get to say, checkmate. When, Homer in Central Park, you sang of unicorns and tails and top hats, smoking pot on the lawn. I couldn't resist your siren song. I followed your cane high up to the sky, even when, you, even when you told Mom that only I was stoned. Which, 
from time before memory, you've bewitched with your trickery, taken the spotlight in every room, bewildered with your mystery. Yet there would be no light if not for your dark coven. And this next poem um, was written after the shooting in Charleston, and it's called Uppity Speaks of Charleston, June 17th, 2015. For once, I have nothing to say to my girlfriend, my sister, myself, even to God, if I could believe in anything after the shootings. Did she not hear the shots? Nine gunned down in a church just for being black, for Christ's sake. No wonder Jesus felt forsaken at the cross. This is our Gethsemane. To say I, to say I am colorblind is to be blind. Who isn't under the spell, the curse of color? Even we who are blind are spellbound by color. When she was a child, Helen Keller and her pals, of all colors, ran wild. She learned who the black kids were when she felt their hair. I do not want to feel anyone's hair other than my lovers or my BFFs, if we've had a fight. Yet I'd like to imagine black and white to understand the hatred, the strife. When I try, my mind's eye only finds a crunchy black and white cookie. Sunset Boulevard ready for its close-up. My cousin's black and white collie. Until I remember my pal Jamie, blind, sassy, and smart like me. Marooned in special ed because she's black and I'm back in Gethsemane. And my last poem is called, That's All, Folks. That's all, folks. Dreaming of angels flying, bats on a wing and a prayer at dawn. I tell the woman downstairs, sweating night terrors, to stop that caterwauling. If the world does end, there's nothing we can do, except like wobbly, adventurous ducks, put on our webbed feet and glide into the rising sun. Thank you. Okay, now is the um, question and answer um, part of poetry and conversation. And um, we'll ask the poets to come up to the front table. And and as soon as they've arrived, um, we can uh, take the uh, first question. Where do you want me to sit? I don't care. Where do you want me? Okay. Yeah, I just want to make sure. So, so you're still, you're still turned on. Am I, am I, am I lit up, so to speak? You are 
All good, yeah. Okay. Anyone like to start? Thank you very much. Very good poetry reading tonight. I have a question. We have a, long, uh, a lot of young people who are aspiring to be poets, and a lot of young people are aspiring to be poets. In other words, they're in school, and um, they like to read poetry, write poetry, experience poetry. So what advice would you give to a typical young person, because you're in university, what what would you give them so they could be successful poets and convey the ideas, the image that um, that you would like them to convey the image to to the audience? Thank you. I would imagine the uh, their love of music could be a good intro into lyrics or rap. That would be an entree. The, the question is how to help young poets, I mean young people who are, want to be poets to be su- successful. Yeah. If I could figure out, if any of us could figure out a way to have poets be successful, we would bottle it and we would all be very, very rich and we could all do money. I mean, I, I think people, poet, I think they should read and listen and be very patient. Um, I, I don't, I mean, I, that's what I would say. I mean, is to read a lot, to be patient, I mean, to listen. Um, but poetry is, I mean, it can be very fun to do, but. I mean, if you want success, I mean, there's no guarantee, but if you want success, you, you're not going to make money from being poetry, from doing poetry. I mean, be prepared to work really hard and, and not get upset. I mean, or, you know, enjoy rejection. Enjoy what? Enjoy rejection. Oh, there's a lot of poets in this room. Somebody else may have a... Brilliant answer. Just about everyone here is a poet, I think. Uppity blind girl. Um, a couple of years ago, I went by title, and um, the title is is very important. And even though I may not have read the book, it was a title a couple of years ago called "Spitback a Boy." I I just like the the title and the cover. The uppity blind girl is the same way as "Spitback a Boy." Just without her saying anything, it's like a stuck-up person with a beautiful dress, you know, uh, just stuck-up, don't even have to be blind, just a stuck-up, snooty, young girl. 
And then the other one, I believe it's still her, um, I, I'm a student, and her reading seemed like I wrote my English papers on from um, a poetry book from the library. And as she was reading, it reminded me of the, the ones I chose to write about my English papers. I never found out my grades because I'm online, but her reading, her reading, her word took me back to the ones I chose to write about. So for them, I, I, I came to, uh, I, I don't know what was these deaf moods, they can't talk, and I realized how anger they can be with, uh, how they express themselves in anger out in public. You know, so everybody has their issues, but you would never think that they would have such an attitude of argument and probably they can really get out there. And so this is my, for all of y'all, the title is important as well. Sure, I'll, I'll just respond just based on what you said. I was actually talking with a friend of mine, also pro performer, Ron Williams, and I hope he doesn't mind if I mention his name if he's still here, but in the audience, we were talking about the power of just expression, um, how expression is a healing force. So just kind of like what you were saying, I mean, just and that's something that poets and other artists, writers, uh, singers, uh, rappers do, is, is express, and then they also express for other people, people who are not expressing, or inspiring those people to express. So I think um, expressing is a healing force, like you're saying, that pent-up anger, and, and also listening and being expressing through somebody else can be a healing force. So I, I see that as very powerful. Um, I have a statement, and then I'm going to ask a question. I find the phrase or the sentence, you're never going to make any money writing poetry to be patently offensive, that um, <laughs> I think that as long as you have that idea that that's a self-fulfilling prophecy, that we should be saying it's more important to create your poetry and work at your craft and try to reach a larger audience. I would never tell anybody you're not going to make any money writing poetry because immediately people have the idea that poetry is a hobby, poetry is something you do on the side, and it's not a real job. I would say work your craft, plan your work, and work your plan. And with that, I'd like to add how much is it important that when you perform or read out that the performance is part of the poetry. Last and last for me, I'm becoming a Carthusian. You know what that is? No. Uh, more and more of the Emily Dickinson School. Too many writers. It is mostly Dear Diary. Emily's was too. Most poets should write less. Write for yourself. No publication. No public bleating readings. Silence, seclusion, reticence. I get off on it. Myself. I'm sorry. That was 
Well, well, when I think about the struggle to get published, to break in on the national scene, to get an audience, to promote yourself, um, partly I enjoy it, but partly it bothers me, and I really enjoy the great outlaws, the Rambo who writes and then goes on to other things. He says, that stuff was childish, mared. Or Emily, who probably would have liked to be published, but um, wrote about it as if it was a frog to an admiring bog, and nobody recognized her stuff anyway at that time. So you got to have that. Alan, all I'm saying, you have that core of delight in your own stuff. The other thing is kind of, I mean, boosterism and Barnum and Bailey hucksterism, which is fine. You know, more power to you. I'm communicating with myself, like in a hive, or there's other bees, I suppose. Well, I would just like to say that I write my, what I want, I write my grocery list for an audience. You know what? <laughs> say that again. Right. I'm very into audience. I'm joking. I'm just being ironic. But I think uh, performing is, is an important part of poetry readings. Um, I don't claim to be, um, you know, the next... Um, Madonna of the poetry reading world, but I think that, though I'd love to be, I think that we come to read, you go to a reading, you're going to see a performance in a way, not, not the Rolling Stones or Madonna, but we, you're going to see something of the poet, and presentation does matter to how you perform. I also write, there's some things that I write that aren't really poems that, I, yes, I write to myself, or I don't think they're good enough to submit, but I write poems. I'm writing for an audience. I don't expect for my two fans, but I, I do write for, for it to be um, read or, or heard. So, um, I, you know, I don't see anything wrong with that. I think it's wrong no. if you're, you, you know. If, I um, think how many, I ask myself how many people have come up to me and, um, said they liked a poem or part of a poem and then had an incisive comment about it that clicked was, oh, you really recognize me as a that thought in myself. And it's so rare that I, I pretty much don't let it bother me that it doesn't happen. And I go to readings with famous poets and I see the people coming up and I hear the questions they ask like... Um, do you like dogs or so I mean, you know, it's just it's not a thankless task, but especially if you you are, are an artist and as you are, Alan, you enjoy what you're doing. You are a great performer. Rap poets are performer. Me, I think I'm more on the page. I'm very shy. Clorinda Harris, by the way. Um, I, I just wanted to bring up, in relation to what you all were saying, the whole concept of a chapbook. Uh, uh, Kathy's book was the winner of a chapbook competition. 
chapbooks originated, as many of you in here know very well, from history and English classes. And yes, I was an English teacher. Uh, the chaps got together, the guys got together, and passed around, sometimes on handwritten broadsheets, sometimes on things that they had laboriously typeset themselves um, among each other, because they did want people to read it. And they were also writing for themselves because they knew that they were perhaps not going to reach an enormous audience. But it made a huge difference to them to have an audience of people who either shared their views or hated their guts or in some cases were willing to pay uh, a few pence to recompense them for the paper and the ink that it took. So the whole idea of a chapbook was sort of really about... Unlike, unlike the chapbook competition that Kathy won, it was about self-publication, not because you wanted any fame or glory, but because you wanted to go public to your particular public. That's what publishing used to mean, not selling something to Harcourt Brace. So I think there's a whole weird concept of what publishing means. It used to mean just saying, okay, I'm going to share some of my stuff with somebody. And uh, maybe that is what Facebook's about, and maybe it needs to go hide itself somewhere. But I mean, don't get me off on Facebook, but, but still um, the idea of sharing with a few people, and that's not Facebook either. That's sharing with a million people what you had for lunch, and please. But I think the idea of sharing poetry is very old and is, is uh, sort of is what publishing used to mean. That's all. I'm going to jump in on that and also on Alan's question, but... Um you know, I think of, well, I mean, I think writing for yourself, I mean, for me, that's kind of like the beginning. Um, and then to communicate with somebody, to use it to communicate, you, I know in my process, or it might not be totally conscious all the time, at some point you're like, well, what needs to be communicated of what I've written to myself? Does it all need to be communicated? Have they heard some of it before? Are they going to be interested in it? How do you start it? How do you catch their interest? So you start thinking about communication, but just um, I want to add one other thing too, just in terms of what Colinda just brought up. Um, you know, going back to the, the poetry, the British poetry of hundreds of years ago that was circulated, and that would probably be like the 16 or 1700s. You know, well, what, when you use a, a form, a traditional form that you've inherited, like a sonnet or a ballad, or like if you take Langston Hughes, which is a long time ago now, but the jazz ballad, which he kind of created, but he took an old form and he created it. You're kind of, just the form itself is a form of communication. You're joining a conversation, right? So, like, you know, I just never, just had, anytime you use, or I use, or a writer uses a form, you kind of, you would assume, and I would probably say it's true for me, you're, you're participating. Your very gesture of using the form, traditional form, maybe even the gesture of using free verse, and where it comes from is a is a is itself a move towards communication and a community. Okay. Yes, this is a question for David. I was tremendously impressed with your ecphratic work, and I'm familiar with Light Ecphratic. It's a it's a website. And I don't understand when they have such wonderful work out there why they don't publish in print. I mean, hard copy. Thank you. Why, why, why can't they get that out? It's wonderful work. Your pieces were great. Well, and, and we really need more of that kind of work. It's, it's excellent. Mary O'Grady's in town. Call her. Well, I've I'll already, give you her email. No, you don't need to because I've already written her letters. I've sent her email. Really? I've, yes. I'm a writer. I... Utilize the post office. Mm -hmm. It's the only place you can 
utilize the communication and not have the NSA spy on you. Anyway, you know about that. Anyway, uh, I think she does a wonderful job. I've written her letters. I praised her work. Mm. I heard what you did. I loved what you did about the prehistoric business. And I just think it's a shame that nobody is taking this and putting it out in book form. It deserves to be. I've written to her. I'm telling it to you. Perhaps you can pass it along. Maybe a publisher will say, hey, this stuff is really good, and we'll do it because you have the visual and you have the words. It's lovely. Might be a matter of money. Well, no, it's a matter of just getting on the stick and doing it. No, 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 no. But Lock Raven Review has been on the Internet for a couple of years, and they didn't do a print version anymore. Well, that's not what I'm talking about. It's like a trend. I'm talking about this particular website and this particular form of writing, which Clorinda actually taught a class on, and I think it's very important to see the visual and the interpretation. I think what you did with the blind girl and with the burial were superb. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put them with my collection of your work, and I just think it's a shame that someone doesn't take O'Grady's effort and publish it in book form. Yeah, it is a shame. Please pass it on. I have written her letters. She never answers. You know, that's America today. Nobody answers their mail, but please pass it along. I loved your work. I Thanks. write your, I answer your emails. Well, you do. You're different. You're intelligent. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> Ross is a great letter writer, by the way. In Sun Papers this week, she's got a letter on our state anthem, which is a lengthy letter. Fantastic. You get a lot of letters published. Yeah, and people read them, so you, you know, don't feel bad about... The Beacon? I will. Yeah, I had a question to Greg about what you said and maybe the other panelists want to say. Something you said, you haven't written as much recently. How is that with you guys? Um, do you wait till you're inspired? And I guess the difference between writing for yourself and then for a community, and then does that also mean it's more laborious editing to fix it up for a general audience? So how, what is the timeline also between getting an idea and then bringing it to where you can complete that? I guess it varies as well, but what's some thoughts on that? Cause I... Yeah, I, I like to write a lot. I write a lot of drafts, and then I, um, I usually maybe I'll go through my drafts and start rewriting. I, this is what I used to do. And then I would, sometimes then I would go into new work or journaling. Right now I'm doing some journaling. Um, but uh, right now, I'm not, I don't have the time for that. So I'm kind of like, those two things that I read that were new, I did actually take them and type them up. And I was able to um, you know, go through a couple of drafts of them, but not some, in some sort of a dedicated way, like on a daily basis. So that's the difference. It's like, it's kind of, um, I guess the, the kernel is when it happens, or if I actually you know, write something down, or think to, or have that moment, but then, also the process to say, okay, I'm going to look at it again or even want to look at it again. So that's the, that rewriting I don't do as much right now. Yeah, right. Kathy, did you? Um, well, I 
for the uppity blonde girl poems, I think I got the idea in 2008. Um, so I'm not exactly a fast writer. I mean, I, I write when I can. Um, having said that, if I waited to when I'd be inspired, I'd probably have to live to be at a thousand years old because it would be a long wait. And I, you know, I, I write when I, I, I try to write as often as I can or when, make myself get an idea and I go through a lot of revisions and work with teachers and um, poets who I respect to get feedback and try them out at open mics and readings and... Uh, one poem I wrote, I think, had 18 drafts. That was the longest. And it was only about a 12-line poem, and each line was like about two words. But <laughs> I've hitched myself to uh, <clears throat> prose lately with a memoir, so um, it's a different kettle of fish. And my editor at $35 an hour tears me up one side of the page and down the other. And um, I just have more of a chance for an audience to contradict what I said before with my peace movement past than I do with esoteric poetry about uh, Mesolithic burials, you know. So anyway, I probably will self-publish it. Another question from you? Oh, no. <laughs> no, just kidding. Okay, this will be the, um, the last question. Actually, I find, actually, I find that um, if you don't make the time to write, you won't write. And uh, as in, I've, uh, I have three um, tracks what I do. I, I work on Pulp Fiction, and every day I write a haiku. And... Uh, if, if it becomes a longer poem, then it becomes a longer poem. So what do you think the advantage of actually just making time to write? There's nothing on television, and uh, uh, you, can get, you can get all the decent movies right here at the library. So what do you think about the idea of actually, and if not making time to write, because Walter Mosley, the great writer, says if you don't write at least two hours a day, then you're not a great writer. Well, I must not be a great writer, but I aspire to write two hours a day. I told you before, Alan, you're writing too much. No. Cut it out. No, there's, there's no, there's no, Alan, there's just no doubt about that. And uh, I think even Hemingway said something about writing every morning, but you just, I think, I think that's the, if you really want to write, you just need to make time to write. Um, I remember when I taught, actually in 2007, I was a public school teacher, and that year I dedicated like, you know, 5.30 to 6.30 to writing every day. And it was great, you know, I wrote, but actually I was writing no fiction. Right? Um, but it was great, you know, and it works, because you, you might not write day one, you might not write day two. You get to write something. You might write recipes, diary entries, whatever. Day three, day four, day five, day 10, day 12, you're gonna write something, you might not know what it is. On day one, what you're gonna be writing, and that's actually the good thing, you gotta embrace that. You will be writing, so that's, I think it's key. And a lot of, most writers, would agree. I I think that people write when and where they can. I mean, I, you know, I've long ago stopped beating myself over up figuratively. I'm don't get me wrong. I'm not for any violence, but I don't chide myself for not writing because most of us write when we can. Um, 
So I don't think there's a prescription. It's not, I don't think a one size uh, fits all. Um, I, th I think, you know, the bottom line is the writer, that, you have, that you'll find a process that works for you and, and that's how you write. Um. Okay, thank you very much. This discussion can continue afterwards. Um, now uh, we'd like to invite um, each of our three um, poets. Give me a pen, I to um, read, do a, a, a short final reading. And I think we're um, doing that in the order of the original readings, uh, Dave and then um, Greg and then Kathy. All right, I'm gonna continue in my French mood. Jardin sur le Nil, which is a perfume by, anybody know? Dior, it was a very famous perfume. Huh? No. Her silage, scent silage, precedes her. Firm, clear, iris naturel absolute. Essence of iris obtained from the root, not the flower. An Armani mat, mat or Hermes, verrue à tous les étages, which means layered in all the layers or something. And for Ariane, I'd add bitter orange, an unblemished peel and green mango before she comes into the room and after. Thank you. I'll read the short one. And this came from um, the, you know, the, the, the first, like the Indy War marches against the, in 2003. So the Iraq War was launched on March 19, 2003. The title of the poem is Why You're Shopping, Bombs Are Dropping. And that was a refrain that a number of people, um, including myself, was you know none of whom I knew were chanting. It was, it was the, the march, the first New York march after the beginning of the Iraq War, and we were coming down or coming back uptown on I think Ninth or Eighth Avenue, and you know it was Saturday, and people are off work and they're shopping, right? And uh, you got to go sometime, right? A lot of people working six, five, six, seven hours, you know, seven days a week. But nevertheless, while you're shopping, bombs are dropping. Saturday sun details faces of marchers and watchers. We are shouting no to normalcy. While I'm speaking, bombs are nearing. In meeting friends for dinner tonight, I still have my life to solve. Whom do I love and whom loves me? While we're breathing, bombs are cleaving. Solidarity with fathers, sisters, neighbors, strangers is how I live, is what we could give. Well, I'm going to send you out with an assignment because 
there's so many activists here. Um, please, this is for all you literalists, please take every word of this literally. This is called to-do list. To-do list. Make coffee. Sort socks. Walk around the universe and back. Meet and greet the human condition. Pack picnic lunch for your ghost. Go to therapy. Play Monopoly with sorrow. Musical chairs with grief. Write a poem that sends all the other poems to the nearest bar for a drink. As an afterthought, eat fire. <laughs>